Hi, welcome to the Save As Podcast, a conversation with the everyday designers behind iconic brands. I'm your host, Kay Funk, and these are the stories and ideas from the builders that define the products you love. On today's very special episode of Save As, I have the honor of speaking with the legendary designer and the godfather of dad shoes, Stephen Smith. This episode is an opportunity to tap into the thinking and design process behind a true creator. In our conversation, we discuss some of the personal projects that drive Stephen outside of the sneaker world, how his relationship with his current boss allows his creativity to flourish, his thoughts on innovation, and how his quest to create new and better has birthed some of the most iconic shoes in the industry. Hey, Stephen, welcome to the show. You know, I could wear my, uh, we, we were having a Zoom meeting with some of the Adidas people the other day, and I put on my Devo Energy Dome for it. <laughs> I could do that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> they did the, the Run Hit Wonder with Nike, and so I was really good friends with the PR girl who um, ran the Run Hit Wonders, and because uh, I took her to meet Aerosmith and uh, we hung out downtown with them and everything. Do you know Portland at all? Yeah, I'm actually from Corvallis. Oh, okay, cool. The guy who owned my Beetle is from Corvallis, this guy, Bill, Bill Gilbert. He was a kind of an eccentric guy. He had this duplex kind of house with a big barn behind it and he had all the cars in it. And so he owned my Beetle. Originally, he bought it brand new, my race car, and raced it. And then decided it was too expensive and couldn't keep up with these guys doing all these upgrades to it. And so he put it in his barn and it was there for 30 years untouched like a time capsule. So he didn't like, you know, he, he doesn't like to talk to people or anything. So I tracked him down and I sent him a question, you know, like, hey, I, I have your old race car and I want to build it back to the, exactly the way you ran it, you know, for historic purposes. He goes, well, what I'd do, I'd put a Corvair engine or a Porsche motor and I'd do this, I'd hop it up, I'd lower it. And I'm like, I, I can't do that. I'm like, the whole point of it is it's like a, a museum piece and to preserve it as you last raced it. I said, that's part of what makes your car special is that it's this survivor and it's a beetle, which is absurd. And that's why I wanted it as a race car. You know, it's that whole like, hold my beer. This is preposterous. Why, why are you racing beetle? Which is what people ask me all the time. And I'm like, oh, I don't know you're seeing any others? And they're like, no, I said, exactly. I got one of one, you know? And the fact that it was this documented historic car was even cooler because with, with, with these race, race organizations, it's very snooty, you know, with your Ferraris and, you know, oh, my car raced at Le Mans in 1964, you know? And it's like, well, my car raced in over 35 races all throughout the Northwest from, you know, Southern Oregon all the way up to Canada. You know, here's the history and they can't argue with it, you know, because it's it's real. This car is real. And I ended up with all of his trophies, everything, the entire history of the car. And so its provenance is like unbelievable. The fact that Bill, Bill documented a beetle with it came with two three ring binders of every penny he ever spent on the car. It, so it's it's like full documentation on every modification. And then every weekend he 
took his typewriter and he made a sheet of checklists. He had a sheet for what he did at home, he had a sheet for what he did at the racetrack, and he had a sheet for what he did when he got home from the race weekend. So, and then it was broken down almost like a diary for every race the car was in, every lap, why he was fast or slow, right? That's incredible. And, and it's great. The car rolled to Seattle and everything, and it's great. It's like lap five, bold. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's hilarious to go through all the documentation on it, but it, it's, it's incredible that somebody did this for, for a Beetle, right? I mean, when you, you know, anyone who's ever driven a, a 60s Beetle, you know that like they'll, they'll barely go 70 miles an hour. And this thing's geared for 125, 130 miles an hour. And, you know, you kind of run out of straightaway because it'll accelerate so much. But, I mean, once the thing hits 90 miles an hour, it, it, it's vibrating, it's shaking. You know, the front end starts to get light because it lifts. It's sketchy to drive fast, but it's also fun. You know, it's exhilarating. And it's, I mean, you, you want to talk about, you know, and, and racing has been one of the coolest things I've ever done because it's this weird mix of like excitement, adrenaline, but you have to stay calm and focused because, you know, you can die. At, at the end of the day, you, you, can, you can die doing this. So, you know, to me, it's, 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 it's fun. It's a great escape because once you get in the car, and I always tell, you know, everyone who I work with, it's like I'm going off grid because I'm racing. I'm like, I will not be texted, phone call, nothing. I said, I need to focus 100% on what I'm doing because, again, I can die. It's such a great release and escape from everything else. You, you, it, as stressful and intense as it sounds and can be, it's super relaxing in some ways because it makes you forget everything else. Totally. So it's been, uh, you know, I, 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 how long have I been doing it? 90. Hmm. I think I got the car in 99. 2000 somewhere around there so yeah almost 20 years and so the cars now become pretty pretty notorious and famous yeah i was gonna say <laughs> you know, <'cause laughs> yeah you see you know there's no better picture than seeing it <laughs> with alphas and yeah. porsches and this is this silly beetle in the, in the mix you know <laughs> totally have you do you have anything that you kind of create a capsule for like he did like he documented everything and kind of created his own archive. Part of the agreement when I bought the car was I had to continue that. So I have folders and file cabinets full of everything I've done with it. Every cent I've spent on it, every magazine, because it's been in quite a few magazine articles. And so I've also kept every race sheet, every entry form just like he did, because that was part of the agreement I made with my friends at the Porsche shop, because they didn't want to sell the car, you know. They're like, we, when we pick a car, car owner, we pick the car owner for the car. We just don't sell cars, you know, it's like. And so they kind of handpicked me to have this car. So it's really cool. It's been in a couple of museums on display. And, you know, they, they picked the right wacko caretaker for it, you know, a, a collector, 
and you know, and that goes back even to the sneaker side of things where I have my collection yeah. of sneakers. And I tried to keep when I've had the opportunity to keep a sample of everything I've worked on and created, except for those early days of the, of the new balances, you know, cause I was a kid right out of college and sample size. So I ended up with hundreds of pairs of new balances. And a lot of them were like one of a kind, one off special colors that we never made. And so when I left New Balance to go to Adidas, I grew up in a small working class town in Massachusetts. And I had a lot of friends from high school that, you know, they didn't get to go to college and they had regular jobs and stuff. And, you know, they, they couldn't afford brand new high-end sneakers. So I gave each one of them a, a hefty bag of about 20. Anyone who's a size nine, oh I gave God. them about 20 pairs, 10 to 20 pairs of all of these super rare new balances that, you know, at the time weren't, there was nobody collecting them like they are now. And they were, they were just cool gifts to give people. And now if they, if they held on to them, then it's thousands and thousands of dollars in one off <laughs> new balances. <laughs> oh my God, that's incredible. I wonder someday, should I have kept those? I don't know, you know, but where, you know, you run out of space. They take up a lot of room. Do you have a storage unit? No, you know, the house that we have here, you know, I was, I was coming out to Oregon to work when I worked for Fila. So they brought my wife out and my wife spent a couple of days look, looking at houses without me. And so she found this house and it had a 1500 square foot basement and with like nine foot ceilings and everything. And the people that had it before us had a full on metal and wood shop in the basement. So it's like wired for 220, plumbed for air and, and She's like, wait, you see this house, right? And it was cool. They had done modifications on the basement windows. So they swing open and you can put in full sheets of four by eight sheets of plywood or materials straight into the basement. So it had this perfect shop. And, you know, I had a wood shop because I build guitars and, and other things. And so it's been, it's been great for that. But one whole, one whole like, it's probably like six or seven hundred square foot area is just dedicated to my vintage toys and sneakers. So it's floor to ceiling solid with moving boxes and then those flip top bins from Home Depot, just full of sneaker prototypes and Hot Wheels and Matchboxes and action figures and all kinds of dementia. <laughs> Do you ever share photos of them? You know, on Instagram, well, every now and then I'll, I'll go through, like, the holidays in particular, I'll go through and kind of pull out some of the prototypes of things as they evolved and development samples and stuff of certain projects. And so I do, I do share some of that stuff that what I have, you know, the Reebok people, they're always trying to buy it all back for me for their archives. My New Balances, I, I, I sold most of my New Balances back to new balance as a discount because they didn't have any archives and they're like oh my god we would love to have all this stuff of the ones that i kept and like i had the first production pair of 997s off the off the line and they were you know oh my god new old stock and they're like oh my god yeah we would kill to have these i'm like well you should you know they yeah they flew me back there as a secret secret surprise guest to talk to their design team which was pretty cool. You know, they're like, don't tell anybody you're coming. Don't tell any of your friends. We want to surprise them that, that you're here. So they gathered the whole design team from all over the world, the, the 
Japanese guys, the kids from Europe, the American guys, and put us all together in this gallery space in Lawrence. You know, and I I had brought a big duffel bag of all that stuff, and you know, and those people forget that in those days you hand drew everything, the mold drawings. Like I hand drew the mold drawings, not just control drawings. Uh, or tech drawings. I did the mold drawings that they cut the steel from back then. Crazy. Yeah, isn't that nice? Was that typical? Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, I was I was only working at New Balance at that point, so I don't know what the other companies did. They may have had early draftsmen and stuff, but I had to do all the drafting. You know, me and this this other designer, Kevin Brown, and we'd have to figure out the the draft angles of the midsole, foreshortening of the tip as it came up and cut the paper patterns for the templates for the actual molds. It was crazy. What an amazing experience though, to understand that. I know, cause the, the designers today, that's all removed. It's off site, it's offshore, somewhere yeah. else. Somebody does it all, there's support structure, but we had to do it all. And then I learned pattern making and pattern cutting from the old shoe dogs. These guys were St. Louis brown shoe guys who built like penny loafers and stuff and they, transitioned into this early thing of sneakers and so i had them teach me everything i had the shoemakers teach me how to make my own shoes it was cool because the factory was just below us so i could go down to see how it was made and uh i'd, I'd look at it and go okay that's how they make it or hmm, it seemed like the best way to make it so let me innovate and create a better way to do that so it it really formulated you know, there's always the, the way my brain worked anyway, problem solving and making things better, not just new and different. It was new and better. And New Balance was kind of the perfect place to like culture that kind of DNA and that, that thought process and, and methodology because we didn't have seasons. You just look, you know, people look at those early shoes now, uh, like waffle trainers and stuff and, and uh, the early, early New Balances. And you didn't, you, you couldn't mold a midsole yet. It was all die cut and cut and buff EVA because that was state of the art. So in those times, you know, I always tell people this wasn't, when I got my job, this wasn't a career. It was new. Right. There were a handful of us in the whole world who were sneaker designers. You know, I got mocked when I would go back to college. They're like, you do, you, you, you draw sneakers? <laughs> You know, but it was cool in, in a lot of ways because, you know, a lot of these guys I went to school with, they went to go work at like Wang Digital, Data General, Corning Medical. So they were making like weird, weird stuff, but it would only be seen by like 20 to 200 people because they'd make these devices that were going to laboratories or scientific places. And I would design something and that, you know, and New Balance was smaller then where they do 50 to 100,000 pairs of something. And it's like, well, how many people see your design, you know? And I'd be <laughs> like, I could, go, I could go out on the street and see somebody in my stuff, which is really cool, you know, when you think about it. And as, you know, after 35 years of this, when I go to um, Japan in particular, where, you know, you know I, I laugh, so I'm like, I'm big in Japan, but all my my sneakers that I've designed over the years are super popular in, in, with with the Japanese because they're they're like me, they're like me. That's why I was able to vibe so well with 
with Japan and, and Japanese culture is we're, we're geeks, you know, we're collectors, we're catalogers, we're archivers. And so when I got there, I'm like, oh my God, I'm amongst my people. This is where I, this is where I really belonged, you know, because I could recite any, you know, they're like this sneaker here. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a 1974 waffle racer. It had this difference. They changed this on the outsole. And, you know, so there was this weird kind of spiritual connection to Japan in particular and, and the, the Asian marketplace through a mindset and a mentality. So I can go anywhere in Japan and go no more than 10 feet and somebody's got something on that I designed, which is pretty cool, you know, from the New Balance to the Nike, to Adidas, to, to the Yeezys, to Reebok. I mean, I could go anywhere. So, I mean, I think back to those early days of those guys, mommy, college, and it's like, do you go anywhere in the world, including like the Smithsonian, London Design Museum, I can go see my work anywhere and it's really cool because it was accessible accessible design and accessible art and that's you know people talk about the sneaker culture and kids collecting it and they don't quite understand it it's like this is their way to to get limited editions in art you know not everybody can own a rembrandt but they can have a tinker hatfield or a stephen smith and, or a kanye west and and have it they can have a piece of it and they're limited and it's they're limited edition art pieces at the end of the day. You know, I'm, I'm truly an industrial designer, but at the end of the day, you still have an art background and you're creating these limited edition, these art pieces. And so that's that's really kind of satisfying it, it, in, in your career. And, it, and it's cool, it's fun, you know? I mean, and we're, we're creating usable art. You know, you, you just don't hang it on your wall. It's like, you can wear it and show it off. and, and and use it, you know, as opposed totally. to just mm, stare at it on the wall or in a gallery. I mean, that, that to me yeah. is what was always really cool about it. Yeah, it becomes a part of you and like you get the opportunity to put your stamp on it in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool. And, and I always, you know, I never wanted to let anybody down. So I wanted to create the best thing that I could at that moment in time with the resources and for the brand DNA that I had. And if you look, I've never designed the same shoe twice. There were a lot of people, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, who, you know, they were kind of designed one-hit wonders, you know, like they did one big shoe and then they could never repeat it. Or they just kept designing the same shoe over and over. And you're like, dude, that's the same shoe. You know, it's like, blue steel magnum, they're all the same. Am I on crazy pills? Can't you see it? Um, and I... Well, that's something I wanted to ask you about is how do you do that? How do you maintain that? You know, it's part of it's part of who I am and it's part of why, you know, Kanye and I work so well together is and I told him, I'm like, dude, we're creative sharks. You, yeah. you have at any point in time, four to 500 unreleased songs on your laptop. I have 2,500 complete designs I've done in my iPad for you and we, we can pull them. You know, we can pull them as an archive. We can pull them as a resource. Sampling, you you can you can bring it out, and it's a it's a catalog, a back catalog, and you you can create the future from the past now, and that's what's really cool about about all of it. You know, I mean, and I've never 
it's a moment in time. We always talked about this when we were at Reba, myself, Paul Litchfield, Peter Foley, when we were the early innovation team. Innovation, and I want to clarify things, is like my old developer at Nike, he and I got pissed because we looked up innovation and we didn't like it. It was new and different. It wasn't new and better. And so it was very funny. He was English, so I made this funny little old English sign above our offices that said, ye old newer and better team instead of innovation team for, for running. And because uh, we despised, we despised that definition, you know, because we, we were always driven for new and better, not just new and different. Anybody can do new and different, but how many people can make it better anytime? So that's, and, and so like I was saying, when, when Lich and I and Peter Foley were talking about it, we're like, it, innovation in, in the true form of it continues, it, it's a continuum you know, and there's your, there's the noble goal, you know, the Arthurian quest. And there's a moment in time where a solution drops out, where either the company needs it or you have exhausted the avenues or resources. At that moment in time, the processes that you can achieve, so it drops out. But you're never not stopping. So, I mean, that's the philosophy I've always had on my design. It's like, there's a moment in time where it's right. And the product drops into the marketplace. It doesn't mean it's done. You know, people are like, aren't you finished yet? I'm like, I'm never finished, you know? And I want it to be better. And even there, there's always discovery moments where like, oh, I could have used this material that was more breathable, or I could have used this material that's more lighter. I could have used this material that has more rebound. And, but at a moment in time, the company, so like the Fury, the, the company needed it. So it came out, it looked like nothing else. It performed like nothing else at the time. It was one of the lightest running shoes in the market. And that was one of the goals because we took out a third of the bottom unit with that carbon fiber arch piece, which was one of the first shoes to ever use that. It came from aerospace and Formula One cars, you know, so things that I was interested in, planes, cars, and racing. And, and so all of those things influence the creative process. But, you know, and people ask me like, oh, what do you think of the Adidas Reebok Boost Fury? I'm like, I think it's great, you know, because at that moment in time, if I had had Boost, I'd have put that in it because it was a better cushioning solution than the EVA that we used. You know, so to me, it's just an extension of that, that continuum. You know, I, I may not have designed that exact shoe. It came out of a great squad at, at Reebok who then aligned with a great squad at Adidas. And then they asked me my permission. Is it okay if we do this? I'm like, ah, you guys own it. You know, do whatever you want with it. They're like, well, we want your approval. And, you know, you're the, you're the creator of it. I'm like, well, it's great. You know, like I said, it's, it's what I would have done at that point in time if I had a better cushioning solution. So to me... It just made sense. And other people expected you to be bent out of shape, like, whoa, they're changing this. I'm like, well, you know, they made it they made it better, not just new and different. They made it better. So it's great. It's part of my DNA and my mantra of yeah. and, and my thought process. So to me, it was a, it was logical and it made sense. So, you know, I mean, you, you, you can look at those things that way, but it's still it goes back to those early days at New Balance of new and better. And so to get to the creative question a part of that it's like i'm not done you know there's more things there's more problems to solve we can always make it better more comfortable more stylish you know i mean i always had fit 
form and function and then you know with the, the way the market is now fashion's been added in, into that mix it hasn't supplanted the others it's added into the recipe of all of it and so that's what's that's what's exciting about all of this it's always different there's always a new a new solution you know don't stop so, do you have a favorite better solution that you came up with you know the fury was actually kind of cool part of it it, it is one of my favorites because everybody gets hung up on the no laces part of it, but that was just a byproduct of the pump system. You know, the, the goal for me was advanced manufacturing. It was parts reduction because people are like, this thing's going to cost $250. You got this pump lighter, you got this carbon fiber in it, you got this hexalite, you got blown rubber in the bottom. And so for me, with the Fury, we took, you know, I, one of the things that always drove me nuts, I would go to the factory and, you know, their goal was very different than ours. Theirs, their goal was to get as many products down the assembly line as quickly as possible because the, they maximize their profit. Mine was to make the best, most comfortable piece of footwear. And so part of their thing is they would add all these stiffeners and backers and crap in there so that it was easy to fly through the sewing machine. <laughs> you know, we spent all this money on these beautiful neoprene collars with spandex, spandex surfaces against your skin. And then they put this big freaking PVC stiffener in there. And I'm like, you've just destroyed all of the comfort goals we had with this thing. Get it out. And like, well, we need it, but blah, 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 blah. You know, the goal is comfort, lightweight, and deconstructed. So, you know, I was constantly going to the factory and they'd be like, oh God, here he comes. And I'd get out a knife and I'd cut the thing apart. And like, what's this, what's this, what's this? And like, oh, the shoe's too expensive. Like, well, there's 25 cents right there, get it out. So with the Fury, we took a normal sneaker, which probably had over a hundred components by the time you're done, when you count the thread, the thumbs, the reinforcers, the overlays, the underlays, and got it down to like 25 parts. Okay. Now, the thing that was cool is, you know, you look at Fury against the things that it was in the marketplace against. It was all of these traditional lace-up, like white, white navy, white silver, mesh running shoes. And all of a sudden, this whacked-out looking thing comes out, right? But if you look at it, and we reduced it to those 25 components, we were then able to take the, the margin points, the initial investment, into all this, this other crap and fillers and things that you didn't need and reinvested into high quality components and materials like the pump ladder and the special, you know, people don't realize it now, but at that point in time, the Fury bladder for the pump had two very different textiles on the inside versus the outside. So the, the outside textile was, they were both circular knit, but what it was allowed to do, the external spandex that was on the outside of the pump bladder was allowed to expand 10%, okay, when you inflated the upper. So you inflated the upper, it expanded a 10% stretch and stopped. The internal one was engineered with 15% expansion. So okay. the outside would inflate and stop, and then the inside would continue to inflate another 5% and take up all the space and adjust fit and everything 
that all of those foams and crap that we used to put in things, you know, because you, you, the, the sneakers are generic shape built on the last, right? Everybody's feet are different depending on their muscle structure or their bone structure, you know, because you can get a size nine that's a wide foot with a fat ankle, or you can get a size nine that's a skinny foot with a high arch and a very skinny ankle, and you've got to fit both size nines with your size nine. So by doing that, traditional thing, throw a shitload of foam in and then the thing collapses and adjusts to your foot. But this way we are able to take all of that stuff out and yeah. take all that money that was invested in all that crap and fillers and, and mediocrity and compromise and put it back in high quality materials. And then just through the adjustment of air and the expansion of that textile to take up all that space that was done by the foam to a customized fit depending on what size your, your, your actual size nine foot was. So it was really cool. Cause that's why I love that thing. Cause there was a lot of real engineering. Totally. It wasn't just another foot covering, you know? Has anyone ever approached you about that for like a ski boot? You know, at the times we were working on it and then, you know, things like we, we, we did, we did rollerblades with rollerblades. Okay. There was, we did, bicycle helmets with bell helmets, the liner and foam. We did, we, we did some, I think they were ski gloves, but you know, when it, when it into things like that, it would partner with somebody then Reebok to do it itself. So we didn't, you know, we, we, we mocked up a bunch of ski boots with them in it. And that's what led us to the, to the rollerblades because it was the hot new sport at the time. And skiing was kind of like mm, their early days of snowboarding. We, we, we toyed with some, some snowboards. The problem is, you know, and a lot of us were av avid cyclists as well. The problem with that is volumes are so small and the distribution levels were so funky for a lot of things like that. You know, they would go to snow and ski shops or the, the bike shops, you know, and a bike shop would buy maybe 10 pairs of shoes and they were lucky if they sold five of them, you know, at, the, at that time in the, in the early to mid 90s. So they couldn't afford it. And then we forward to amortize the investment in pairage that small. Lich and I were mountain bikers. We would mountain bike at lunch. Right. We would take certain air bladders and upper upper bladders. And so like we would repurpose them. So we took the track and field one, which with track of the sprint spike, you want to lock your forefoot onto the spike plate, right? To hold you in place on the spike plate to get maximum force on, on sprinting. But with cycling, you want to do the same thing and lock yourself onto the pedal platform with the SPD pedals. And so we would repurpose the track spike plate and make some cycling shoes for some cycling pros. So it was really cool, you know, be it just being smart, being smart about it and reapplying it. And that's how we were able to, to do things like that. And then they kind of spun off a lot of what we were doing into like a licensing division. So we would work with them with other people to do it. Because, you know, Reebok, Reebok wasn't known in the ski business, so did it make sense for us to get in that? Not really. You know, we would, we would partner with somebody who was already in the ski boot or snowboard business and let, let them do it, and then we would OEM kind of the, the pump ladder for them. So that's, that's how we did a lot of, a lot of things. And, and it's like cushioning. You know, we, we sold it to a treadmill company, and they did the treadmill deck with the hexalite cushioning, which was kind of cool. And then at some point they did licensed ones where they were Reebok branded ones. But again, Reebok didn't make them because it didn't make sense. 
you know, because it's a whole different set of infrastructure and engineers and, you know, beyond and, and skill sets beyond what we did. And that was kind of cool. Yeah, it was it was really cool because, you know, at the time, Pump was on fire, you know. It, we used to use it for, for, for money. So, like, when part, part of the whole deal with the, how the rollerblade thing came about is, like, we all, we all like hockey. You know, we all grew up in New England. So we wanted to play roller hockey. Like, that'd be great to have some rollerblades. So we, you'd go to the big NSGA show in either Chicago or the Atlanta Super Show. So you'd go to the rollerblade guys, like, hey, yeah. Uh, like what do you work for like Reebok oh, my kids would do anything for a pair of pump shoes so I'm like oh yeah how about trade us a couple pairs of rollerblades oh anything you want you know and so we'd get like three or four pairs of rollerblades give their kids pump shoes and you know it, it became became converse <laughs> and so That's you know awesome. then they'd get them and go, oh you know what this might actually be cool in the rollerblades and so that it you know it, in some ways it was it was business growth and brand and brand growth, even though it was like us getting things we wanted <laughs> for ourselves, it did expand and grow the business. So yeah, you know, and you know, a lot a lot of it is break break the paradigm, and, and that's what we were challenged to do: question things, do things differently, forget everything that you know, and you know, and that's that's what's great about my current situation is Kanye is great for that of like breaking the paradigm and forgetting everything you know and why well, do it that way well you always did it that way well, why don't we try this and it's cool because it gets us to new place captures a lot of those golden moments in those early days of the, the innovation team at Reebok we were always up for those challenges you know myself in particular was like I've always been that hold my beer guy let's fuck shit up and you know <laughs> why why do it that way because other people would be like why are you doing that and I'd be like why not you know, if it was easy, anybody could do it. It's hard. So game on, let's do it. You don't know what you don't know till you know it. So if you don't try it, you never know. Right. So that's, that's kind of been a, a driving philosophy behind a lot of it. So I'm interested how your brain sort of works. Like I heard that sure a lot of people are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much. You know, I read that you kind of see and think in drawing. And someone was telling me a story that when you designed the, the Pump Fury colorway, you sort of saw in your mind's eye, like someone running with a shoe that was on fire and that just inspired. Yeah, you know, you know, we, we create objects of desire. The yeah. shoe that I wanted as a kid was the New Balance Super Comp. And I loved how it, it went from red to orange to yellow, like a, a looking flame. And the tip had this snake tongue, like a flame on it. And so if you look at the Fury tip, it, it has some of this to it. And I wanted it to be, you know, at the time, you know, people look at New Balance, gray, blue, navy, burgundy. They also made this, which at the time was quite disruptive yeah. for a racing shoe because it stood out. You couldn't miss it. And I liked that aspect of it. And so that's kind of drove that idea of the Fury. So the Fury was kind of, the, the colors were very 
never mind the Bullocks, Sex Pistols, Punk in Your Face. It was very, at the time, triathlon was a budding sport. And those guys were the most outrageous in their outfits. And Body Glove, those early colors of those days uh, were bright and in your face. And I, I love that aspect. And that shoe, that idea of fire, is what shaped those fury colors you know it was very bright it was very in your face it was complete opposite of what was what the marketplace was about at that time so it stood out everything about that thing stood out it made a statement there's no doubt when you looked at that you knew what it was love it or hate it because it was a very polarizing shoe people were like what is that thing you know and it looked like nothing else in the Reebok running line and so there was a lot of pushback from marketing. Like, we can't put that in our line. It doesn't look like anything else. We're like, that's the point of it. Don't you get it? You know, it's a statement. It's a show car. It, that, that's part of it was. it was. There was this Detroit show car come to life, you know, because you go to Detroit, you go to the auto show, you see these future vision for cars, and you're always like, God, that's so freaking amazing. It would be great to drive that. And then the thing comes out and it's like all watered down and marketed and committed and boring yeah. and dull. Like, that's not the thing they showed us. And you're like, <laughs> you know, like a letdown. And so to me, this was that ability to build that show car and deliver it to the people as opposed to let them down with some watered down thing that marketing wanted us to do. Like, we can't sell that. It's not this. It's not that. And we're like, fuck it. That's that's not what this is, you know. And I had the backing of Paul Fireman behind me, which was great. It's great when you have the, the at the time the owner of the company, going, "This is what I asked you guys to create. I asked you to show me the future and to create these things that other people couldn't, you know." And everybody wanted our job. Like, oh, it looks like it's fun. It's, it, of course, it's fun. You know, it's but it's hard. It's hard work. That's why everybody can't do it. And that's why we were separated and dedicated to do just this, you know, and, and people became envious of it. And ultimately, it was part of the downfall of the team because, you know, people are always attacking us like, I want to do that. Can't you get rid of them? And I can do that. And it's like, well, it's their job. It's what they're good at. They don't want to do. I don't want to do your job. Why do you want to do mine? You know, your job looks easy compared to ours. You know, I travel all the time. I go to Asia for three weeks at a time away from my family five times a year. It's like, it's not as glamorous as you think it is. You know, I mean, the output is. Yeah. But the, the actual creation process, is, and again, you know, to get back to one of your early questions, like, it's hard to stay fresh. Even then, because at that point it was... 94 I had been doing it for eight years and now 35 years it's like it's just built in me to to never to never stop and never stop creating and I hope I don't ever have to but it's difficult it's difficult to stay fresh this long as, as people will tell you because they burn out they fry out they're one-hit wonders and I've just never let that get to me. So I don't know. How do you, how do you rationalize like brand DNA? I mean, you have done such an amazing job of having such a distinctive personality 
against all the brands you've worked for and all the product you've created? Like, how do you, how do you do that? You know, part of understanding the history of it, being, being a runner helps because you understand like everybody's stuff fits different. If it was all the same, why would you buy it? You know, why would I buy a Nike versus a Reebok versus a New Balance? It's like each brand has the, their message that they tell, their fit, their materials, their problem solving. And so that becomes part of the DNA strand of it. You know, it's when you, when you don't accept who you are that you fail. You know, and Fireman was about this, this idea of the new, of challenging things and, and doing things differently. And that's where kind of Reebok came in. That was their, their forte and their success was creating this, this aerobic shoe. You know, everybody thought everything should be like a basketball shoe, big, heavy, thick collars, double, triple leather. And they came out with this thing that was a garment glove leather. And it just collapsed. And people were like, that's got no support. But it's what women wanted. They wanted this ballet slipper on a running or tennis, tennis type of, of bottom for this new thing they were doing called aerobics. So, you know, Reebok was about seeing this nugget of innovation and evolving quickly to address it to something new. And so that that partnered great with the, the way I looked at it. New Balance was other than things like the Super Comp, um, very rooted in tradition, very performance driven, very methodical in how they progressed the product. Again, at that time, there were no seasons. Yeah. You're like, oh, it's die cut EVA, but look, you can mold it now. So we integrated that in there. So the process improved so then it was time to update the shoe it wasn't like when you got to like a nike it's like oh it's fall gotta update the shoe oh it's back to school we need a new shoe whereas at new balance it was like there's a chance to make it better right and that's when we would update the style and so each of those little idiosyncrasies or almost what people would perceive as quirks become the dna of it it's like and, and that's what was cool with, with, with Reebok is, is firing. It's like, show me something I've never seen before. So that became the DNA of what we did and generated it. And it was, it was rooted in, in that initial nugget of comfort that defined what the modern Reebok was versus Foster's with the running shoe background, which was the origin of the brand. And so we looked at technologies and things that made it, it comfort but still not a nod back to J.W. Foster and sign and the, the origins, origins of the brand. So, you know, and then Nike was very about winning. Phil Knight was, Paul Fireman was about making money and stream of consciousness thinker because his background was in sales and Knight with his background in track and field was about winning with Bowerman. You know, Bowerman is the coach. You got to win, you got to win, you got to win. And so Nike, the DNA was about winning and you made compromises on, on things. And, and at some point, as a lot of the product people were extracted, kicked out, purged, it, it became numbers people and winning was equated to monetary reward. So it became profit driven and that was the goal of winning. And that's where the point where I was like, mm, I thought this was gonna be my forever career, but I don't know if it's just about revenue generation, then where's, where do I fit in anymore? You know? And then they let me go, which was like, great. It solved my problem for me. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, on to bigger and yeah. better things. That's insane. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Well, whatever, you know, 
it's it's the past i can't change it you know but i can let it change me to be a better person or to learn from that and either not make those same mistakes or let people set traps for me because that was the thing some people set traps for you because there was insecurity or envy and they needed to get rid of you as opposed to your contribution because i mean it, the contribution was obviously there because they keep reviving all my own styles and they're selling better than ever you know with the with the stussy collab and then the supreme collab people and and, and it's it, it's been good for the mystique of stephen smith is that like they're pulling this <laughs> stuff from the archives and people are like who did this and it's like oh it's that guy 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 you know and it's cool because you know, you're getting this acknowledgement. And in a company that big, there was always a competition to be heard or the voice or to be the spokesperson. And it's so big, everybody can't be the spokesperson. So people were selected to be the face of it and the face of design. And you were kind of like, yeah, no, you're not who we're talking about. You know, I'm like, well, everybody design the figure Max. What? And like, yeah, but you're not who we're talking about this season. Disappear into the background, again, you know? And so people didn't know who created what. And, and so it's, it's... You kind of feel like you're going through the ultimate fuck you <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Of... <laughs> yeah. Zero fucks yeah. given. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. what's it going to change? <laughs> you know, I look yeah. back and, and could I have been a better person? Maybe. Would it have changed my trajectory? I don't know. You know, if somebody had it in for me, they had it in for me, regardless of what I contributed, because I did major league sneakers that became more industry icons in my quiver but it really didn't matter because somebody didn't like me I don't care if you like me or not you know it's like I'm not there to be part of your boys club I'm there to create great product and in the end it generates revenue and it, you know to me that's the business never once did I see in a job description ass kisser and that's not me. My parents didn't raise me that way. It's like, that's, I'm not a faker. I'm legit. I don't kiss ass. I kick ass. And there's a difference, you know, and the, the proof is in the history. You know, I never, I never sat down and said, today I'm going to create an iconic sneaker that's going to be around for 30 years. I sat down and I said, What's the best thing I can make at this moment in time for this brand with the ingredients I have with their DNA? And this is it. And, you know, and then the next one is that's it. That's it. That's it. And so you never you, you never give up and you never stop innovating and never stop creating. Because, again, it gets back to that early part of the conversation of that chaotic and Arthurian quest and and so yeah. again, I'm not done. And, and when I am done, when I'm dead, somebody else hopefully will will pick up the quest, you know. And that's what I hope for. And that's what I hope to inspire in a lot of young designers. It's like I get a lot of sketches sent to me and stuff, and it's like it's it's not new. It's just rehashed stuff. It's like show me something mind blowing, you know. And and that's the way I viewed a lot of competitive product too. Like when, in those early days when I was, at, you know, I always tell this story because it's, it's true. It's fat. When I was at New Balance, we were making tip saddle foxing, the standard thing, leather mesh. The sock racer came out. Bruce Kilgore did that. I saw that thing and was like, 
what is that? Uh, that's like nothing I've never seen. I, I, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. It's so, that to me was the, I saw the future. And from that moment on, it changed my entire attitude to this. It's like, I wanna do that. I wanna come out with something that raises the bar every time. And it, it, it's a driving force. And I think that's, again, what, what separated me creatively from a lot of people. It's like, I wanna do that. I want something that's so mind-blowing that I wish I did it. And that's the way I like to see other designers do things. It's like when something comes out, I, I want to see it and go, damn, I wish I did that. And totally. so that's the way I look at a lot of modern designs. And I haven't seen too much lately, which is disappointing. You know, I mean, I want someone to kick my ass, you know, you want that competition. Damn, yeah. I wish I did that. I let my guard <laughs> down. I, I wasn't pushing the envelope totally. enough. You totally. Know? And so it, it, it takes those fuck it moments where you're just like, I don't care if it's conservative. I don't care if you think it's not going to sell. It's going to go someplace different and, and open people's eyes to the future, you know? And, you know, part, part of the thing that I have that, like I always say, it's a curse and a blessing simultaneously is I inherited this insane memory from my father where, like, he can tell you everybody in town who their aunts, aunts and uncles were, where they grew up, what street they lived on, where their dad lived. And, and it's like, you know, he's like a human catalog of the town we grew up in. And I kind of have that for, for product and, and concepts and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, you know, again, like how I relate to the Japanese. They're like, well, this shoe. And I'm like, I can tell you exactly about that shoe, who designed it, where it came from, how much it was, where it was sold. And I can remember the exact first day I started at New Balance, who was there, what I had on, what was said. I mean, and in some ways it's a blessing because you have this incredible archive in your head. And in some ways it's a curse because it's all there at once. It's not like you can pull it off a shelf. It's like, it's all there competing. And you can see how people who have these weird brains like this lose it and go crazy. Because if you listen to it all at once, it can definitely send you off the edge but it's part of it's like suppressing it, not making it go away, but figuring out how to pull something out of it for what you need or to formulate things. And, and, and I look at people like Nikola Tesla, misunderstood in his time, but everything we do now revolves around the creations and innovations and statements that he made. And I, you know, and he always said he got transmissions from aliens that, in his sleep and I, and I wonder sometimes like because I'd wake up in the middle of the night and sketch a shoe <laughs> and bang there it was you know so who knows yeah I don't know you know did I get yeah did I get a weird glimpse into the future today and I'm building you know that that's the thing you know with, with Kanye and I talk about this a lot and it's like did I did I time travel almost and see the fury and I just brought the future to the present and people just didn't understand it. Yeah. And now you see how big and popular the thing is. It's like, I, I, 
I was lucky if we sold 50,000 pairs at the time. I was just happy that we, we made the thing, you know, and now right. it's like millions right. of pairs of that thing 30 years later. And it's like, maybe, maybe, maybe I received a transmission through yeah. my energy dome <laughs> and gave me those ideas. <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe it's just my own wacky brain <laughs> formulated now. It kind of, who knows? You know, either way, it's cool. Do you have, yeah, <laughs> most definitely. Um, do you have, are you, if you have your brain archive, are you documenting it somewhere? You know, I have my sketchbooks. You know, I, people always tell me you should write a book or whatever, but there's no time to write when I'm making new stuff. You know, <laughs> I mean, through through the virus, after I'm done with my work hours at like seven o'clock at night or whatever, I start making things, you know, I can't help myself. I built electric guitars. This week I built a tube, a tube spring reverb tank for a, a guitar amplifier. Cause it's like, I can't, I'm always learning. I always want to learn something new every day. And it's like, yeah, cool. I can do some soldering. Why don't I just build my own electronic devices? So I've started doing that. It's an extension with the guitars. You know, you, oh, you're installing pickups and volume controls. And I started to experiment with different capacitors and how they affect the sound of the guitar relative to what they filter out of the, of the tones coming through the pickups. And so then that just naturally went to like, oh, well, you know, why don't I just build build my own spring reverb tank? Why not? You know. <laughs> it was funny when so like for the Fury, and then we did the track spike, the MV.01 MOV or whatever, margin of victory, or whatever the marketing guys called it in the end. But those carbon fiber pieces I made myself. Really? We had the raw yeah, we had the raw carbon fabric that we got from an aerospace company. We got some resins, and then myself and Dave Lacaraza, who was my junior designer at that time we made our own molds based off the last and the offsets of the materials and uh, we would you know mix up the urethanes wet out the carbon fiber and then cram it in this mold put it in a vise clamp it and out would become the, those first parts and so we'd hand trim them and then you know you get all itchy because you got all the fibers in your skin from the carbon fiber that's horrible and uh you know we were always making and building and I, I, again a lot of that goes back to the New Balance days of seeing how it was made. And part of it goes back to my, my grandfather, who was from that, you know, that, that what they call the greatest generation. He could do anything. He was, he was a detailed finished carpenter. He, did a, he wired his own house. He did all his own plumbing. He taught me how to do all those things, and I inherited a lot of his hand tools. And, you know, thank God I inherited a lot of his skills and his, and his mindset of, like, why can't you do it? You know, from those days, the the people who grew up in the 30s and the 40s, they they, they just did it because you had to. And so to me, you know, that, that's a good driving force. I mean, if you can do it yourself, give it a shot. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. And if you never try it, you never know. So, you know, who the hell ever thought I could build a reverb system? But, you know, I tried it. I would, I would, you know, they call it, when you're building electronics and things like that for the first time, they call it the smoke test when you plug it in the first time and it either bursts into flames or it works. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, plugged it in last night and it was like, it works. It didn't catch the house on fire. So it was pretty cool. Well, do you feel like, like what was your biggest failure 
that you, I mean, it seems like if you're constantly innovating and constantly working on things, like, was there something that failed that you actually feel like, I mean, failure is a shitty word, but like something that didn't was, work. Yeah. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, you know, and I always try to encourage younger designers with this. There's no such thing as a bad idea. There's just a moment in time that's right yeah. for it. Hmm, that's a good question. You know, a lot of the things that we had done at Reebok, we created this, you know, and again, it gets back to that, that thing with, with Ye and the music is we created this incredible back catalog, catalog for Reebok and library of technology more than they could digest. So here it was 10, 15 years after I left and they were still pulling things out that we had created and bringing it to market. I mean, ZigTech and things like that were things that we had done originally, just the, the company didn't have the the capacity to absorb it. And again, you know, maybe that was our downfall because we shared it all and everybody's like, well, we got so much stuff, we can't use it. We don't need you guys to create anything else. And it's like, well, yeah, you do. We're problem solvers, you know? And so, you know, some of those things actually did, did come to life later. You know, there was a shoe I did at Nike that was horrible. And I, you know, I'm glad it's gone away and forgotten. I'm not even going to bring up the name, <laughs> but you know, it was doomed from the beginning. The brief sucked. We needed to do it in, in Korea and in the, the dead days of Korea. It was no longer affordable and it needed to be a $67 retail shoe, which was a weird price point. And it was impossible to do. But, you know, we made a deal with the factory. We'll give you this big program. You know, it's, and, and it was just horrible. It's just one of those that I'm glad it's forgotten. But it was, it was, again, you know, there were price constraints, there was manufacturing constraints, and it was just, it was doomed. Yeah. It was just doomed. And it's like, no matter how good you made the design, and it was a, it was a pretty good design, but it just, it just didn't work. You know, it came out and it bombed, and I was like, thank God that thing's done. We don't have to anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> you know? What was your biggest lesson from it? Like, don't listen to shitty briefs or <laughs> yeah question it more question like, it more. why are we doing this thing there it just doesn't make any sense you know you don't put your low-end shoe in one of your highest end manufacturing bases and it's like nah <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't even a good one to keep the lights on you know a lot of those entry-level price point ones are good volume generators and revenue generators and it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna do either you know, it was just like, it was just, everything about it was bad. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, backtracking a little bit, how, I'm super curious, like how you got into design and then you were saying that your friends went into more like medical and electronics. Like how did you get into sneakers? You know, it's very funny. I always laugh because I remember married with children. Yeah. And Al Bundy, how he scored the, the, you know, his biggest achievement in life was scoring the winning touchdown for Polkai in his senior year. And it's like, I always laugh at that. I always call it my Al Bundy moment. I ran high school track. I was okay. I was a distance runner, you know, and they had always put me in some fast things. And I'm like, I'm not about sprinting. I'm about like staying the course. And, and you know, again, part of that, again, is that philosophy of getting these projects done. It's like, I see the end and then I'm going to take us there. You know, other people go over here, they go over there. They, they always forget the end. And so for me as a distance runner, it's like, I know, 
I know how far I'm going to go. I just have to do it. And I ran high school track. And again, you know, they put me in these short and middle distances, which wasn't the place for me. But I did, I did okay. And I, lo I love to run. And so when I graduated from school and heard that New Balance had this position, and I ran in New Balances, and I was like, sneakers? Didn't know anybody designed it. And at that point, people really didn't. Right. So it was kind of a new field to go into. So I went up. I, I'm like, and, and my parents were like, because I took the entire summer off. Are you going to get a job? I'm like, ah. <laughs> I think so. I got to try, you know, and so I didn't want to go work for a consultant, you know, because I don't, I just don't like it. You know, you're always beholden to the next business deal and the next job, and uh, freelance was never meant for me. You know, I like, I like having a company's resources available to me. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's like having a lab. It's a financial lab. It's also a resource lab. It, in a lot of ways, it's good to have that. And some people like the freelance ability to walk away from a job or when you're done with it, you're done and on to the next thing because it gives you a variety of things. But I like to focus. And so I like to run. And I heard New Balance had this job and I ran a New Balance. So I'm like, this could be kind of cool. I could design the next shoe for myself to run in, which to me was super appealing. I went up there. It was it was the Reagan era in the 80s. Everybody's wearing button-down collars and ties and three-piece suits and stuff to their jobs. And I go up there, and it's in this ratty old mill in Lawrence, and everybody's in jeans and T-shirts and <laughs> sneakers. And yeah. I'm like, this is like, it's like grub heaven. It's, you know, and, and in those days, they, had, they didn't even have a casual Friday yet. It was like casual every day. I'm like, yeah. this is great. <laughs> and, you know, I grew up in an old mill city where they made precious metal things, silverware, jewelry. What city was it? Taunton, Mass. And so it was all, it was industrial. You know, they, mills and factories and garments and locomotives. I mean, just crazy stuff. And so I was surrounded by these old mills and factories. So it appealed to me. There was a comfort to it. And so we go in there and I'm like, it was all ratty. I'm like, this is great, right? And it's <laughs> industrial. And, and so we interviewed and, and like, can you do blueprint drawings? And it was very funny. In, in school, I took an internship at this, what I thought was going to be a consultancy. And maybe that's why I dislike them because I took this <laughs> job and it was supposed to be industrial design for the summer, but they didn't have any ID jobs. They had found no ID projects. So they did interior architecture and space planning to pay the bills. And so we did three different radio stations for WLLH up in Lowell interiors. They kept finding different places like, oh, now we want to do it here now. So I had to go measure the site and do all these blueprint drawings. So it was endless blueprint drawings for these radio stations and buildings. And so it became like the the tech drawing and blueprint master, right? Yeah. And so I go to interview at New Balance. Like, can you do blueprint drawings? And I'm like, can I do blueprint drawings? So I laid out all of these architectural drawings. They're like, wow, you know. And and I love to run, <laughs> and I wear New Balances, and I had them on. I wasn't I wasn't doing it to brown nose. It's just that's what I had. Right. And they're like, well, you definitely have everything we need. And, oh, it's 11 o'clock, you know, we, it's time to go running. And I'm like, what? 
They're like, everybody goes running at lunch. And I'm like, where do I sign? You know, like, oh, hold on, you know, we'll get back to you, you know. And so I had to leave. It was time to go. And so I went home and my parents like, do you get the job? Like, I don't know. I said, it looked really cool. Yeah. It was a long ways away too. It was like 70 miles from where I lived. Because I lived in Southern Mass and they were almost on the New Hampshire border, you know. <laughs> and I was used to it because my dad had a crazy commute to Worcester. And so they called me the next day and offered me the job and it was good money. And I was like, wow, that, that was easy. <laughs> and so, I just got my dream job. Yeah. Well, I didn't know what I wanted to really design at that point. But I was a sneaker, you know, sneakerhead before there was such a thing. I kept every pair I had, even though they were worn out. And, and uh, so it was pretty, it was pretty cool. It was like destiny. It was meant to be. And at times I'm like, should I get out of this? <laughs> you know, should I go do something else? So I'm a legit designer. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, and, I, and I, I talk about it a lot because it wasn't a career, but people like myself and Tinker and Ray Tonkel and Kilgore and Wilson Smith and a lot of these early guys we define this, what it should be as a job, as a career, you know, not, not knowing that we were doing it because it was new. And so we created this desirable role, you know, through what we did and how we did it. And, you know, now kids all want to do this. And it's like, I got shunned in, in the product design world. because That's I was going so to design, crazy. You're going to draw sneakers. And it's like, well, somebody has to design it, which I didn't even know at the time because nobody did. And so, again, you know, it's that work that we did and those products that created that made this something people wanted to do, which was really cool. So anyway, I've been I've been grateful for it and settled into it. And, and you know, I've, I've done other things and I've, I've done really good doing some designing some other product. But, you know, I mean, I, I look back at it and I've seen some people who are amazing automobile designers or amazing product designers, and they can't make the leap to this. There's a gift. There's a gift to this. There's an art to it. And either you have it or you don't. And uh, again, I've seen amazing car concept designers come into this and their shoes are terrible. And it's not to slight people. It's just I truly believe that there's a gift. And I was given a gift by God and I might as well use it. What do you think those gifts are that make footwear designers great? Part of it's an eye for it. You know, the shoe should look, I, I, I've seen a lot of designs that just don't look right. They're not balanced. In those early days, we, you know, we didn't have 3D. We, we didn't even have a color copier. We were lucky to have a black and white copier at that point. There were no computers. The computer was a word processor that an admin used to do a form, to do a purchase order. And you drew it all by hand. And so, you know, you drew these side views of things, you know. And so there was a magic when that first three-dimensional representation came back where you, you turned it around and there was something about the back. It was just like, God, that looks horrible the way these two lines came together. So you resolved it, which you can do, all, you know, you can do it all now digitally. But in those days, you had to then cut a new pattern, stitch it up make a whole new prototype to see what it would look like in three dimensions. So you learned your brain evolves to visualize it in three dimensions. And there, there's, a, there's a gift and a magic to that. 
to be able to visualize it in three dimensions and, and create it in two dimensions, but understand what it was going to be like in the third dimension when the thing came out. Sometimes you are pleasantly surprised where you're like, wow, that looks great. So then you started to anticipate it and process it and make sure that it came out great in three dimensions. Like I, I, I've seen some designs from another company that come out and it's like everything's front heavy and there's nothing in the back and you're just like, woof, you know? And if I don't create something, if I don't think it's beautiful or worthwhile, how could I ever expect a consumer to want it? You know, if I don't like it, why would, why would I expect somebody else to? You know, I mean, would I spend my money on it? That's what I always ask people. Would you spend your money on that? Well, no, I'm just deciding it to get it off my table. It's like, well, it's doomed. You know, like if you don't, if you don't like it and love it, how can you expect someone else? You know, so it's, I don't know. All of those things are, you know, part of its gift, part of its sensibility, part of its, its, its uh, evolving process. Yeah, I love that. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like now? And I would say both you and Kanye are sort of creative geniuses. Like, what is it like to work with another person that is like on your level? Or do you think you guys are on the same? I, I don't know. Level? You know, I mean, I've never thought I was as good as I perceived as to be, you know, because you're always challenging yourself. And like, I'm not that good. I got to do better. It's always do better, do better, do better, do better. It's, it's cool because you understand each other's gifts and you let those flourish. And I think that's, that's the difference, you know. He's an amazing creative director to give you the spark of a concept or you show him something and he, he knows how to push you, you know. And it's, again, sometimes you... You know, you have your own little bit of insecurity, but it's nice when somebody pushes you over the edge. You know, it's like the little kids swimming, you throw them in the pool. They're going to swim. It's sink or swim. But you know they're going to swim because it's inherent in you. And sometimes you get pushed into the pool and you got to swim. So it's kind of cool as, as an older designer who's done this for so long. I like to, like I said, I like to learn something new every day. And his thought process or ideas very different than what you were trained for in a corporate environment. So the best thing you can do is, is unlearn and start over. And so it's a great, cause it's a learning experience. You learn something new every minute and you're exposed to the, to the music industry. So you, you have these different sensations coming at you that change your formula, whether you like it or not. And so that's, that again, is, you know, the, the thought process and a different strand of e, e, DNA that you're now following. And so anyway, that's, that's the magic of all of it, you know? And it's, it, a lot of it's impulsive, like, hey, I was thinking to go see this. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, and it's something halfway across the country. And like, when are we going to go? He's like, now get in the jet and we go and look at something. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> totally. It's like a whole different set of resources. Yeah, it's just a different, you know, it's, it's a whole different perspective on it. And to me, it's like, hmm, that's fascinating. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Spock moment, fascinating, Captain. <laughs> 
What is the most fascinating thing you've learned with him? Uh, again, unlearn. Look at things simply. Don't complicate it. There's plenty of people who complicate it to hide behind the complication. It's much better to simplify it and just be honest and be the, and, and live the truth. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, I guess a little bit on that point, what, what is success to you? I, I, I don't know for sure. You know, how do, how do you measure that? I, I don't know. Part of it's been this longevity and, uh, you know, I, I think again, you know, that, that thing of going on the street and seeing somebody in something that you design, that's, that's a pretty cool indicator. Like, you know, and, and when I can, I tell people like, thank you. Thank you for appreciating my design and buying it. Thank you for thinking enough to spend the money to, to buy my design. I, I think that is more important than anything to have somebody else understand or appreciate what, what you've created your child. You know, this is your child. Thank you for taking care of it. And, you know, a lot of them have created great lives of their own. You know, all those new balances and the fury. It's, it's lived beyond whatever I expected it to be. They grew up and made something of themselves, you know. I guess in a way that is your, your archive, all these living products. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it, it's yeah. a legacy of, of things and not everybody is fortunate enough to have achieved that or, or gotten yeah. to that point. Well, is there something in the industry, kind of switching gears a little bit, that you wish the industry did differently? Or like, what is your, your biggest wish for the industry right now? You know, I think people in companies understanding us and being able to appreciate us and, and part of it's financial reward you know i'm no millionaire for all of the amazing stuff i've done but i definitely yeah. wish that earlier in your career people appreciated you more other than treating you like a necessary evil or a commodity like oh it's just the designers you know they, they dismissed you right your creativity because they didn't understand it. You yeah. Know, that's probably one of the biggest things is getting people to, to under, understand you. Yeah. And under understand it. So that's, that's, that's the hard part of it. So I wish, I wish people under understood us better. Yeah. That's, that, that's my wish. Well, thank you so much. This has been incredibly inspiring and I'm just really grateful to get to talk to you and hear your stories and your insights. So thank you so much. Yeah, hopefully I didn't ramble too much here and there, but it's, you know, you want to answer things thoroughly. And again, you know, that that ability to think stream of consciousnessly, but then reconnect things is, it's, it's part of a critical thinking and critical creation of being able to take something and, and blow it up and create all new avenues and routes for it yeah. all at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. And I can't wait to share this episode. Okay. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Huge thank you to Steven for coming on the show and sharing a view into his incredibly inspiring mind. I hope you leave feeling inspired to create newer and better. 
to see some video and awesome photos of some of the things we spoke about in the episode, including his original Debo hat, early sketches, hand-built guitars, and his one-of-a-kind racing beetle, please check out our Instagram at SaveAsPodcast. Thanks for listening to the Save As Podcast. To help us get off the ground, we would love for you to subscribe, leave a rating or comment, and tell a friend. We would also love to collaborate with you. Who would you like to hear on the show? Please DM us and let us know.